Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 286. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend at Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lender's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, with the possibility of an exclusive VIP in-person component. The verdict is in on Lender's 2020 event that was held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they had ever attended. Lender is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lended Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com USA. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Billy Libby. He is the CEO and co-founder of Upper 90. Now, Upper 90 is a really interesting company. They are, they are very unique in what they do. They are far more than just a capital provider, which we get into in some depth. They do provide capital to companies in the, in the fintech space and in other areas. But they're more than a debt fund. They are really a partner for growth companies. That's really what they focus on. And we talk about, you know, their thesis, the unique way he operates the fund, particularly who, who their LPs are. And uh, we talk about what are some of the things they look for in a company, what the, what kinds of companies they invest in, the check sizes they write, the typical kind of situations that they're looking for. Also, it has a fascinating take on, uh, on what's going on with embedded finance, which we, we also talk about in some depth. And, uh, and also what's, uh, what's coming down the pipe. It really was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Billy. How are you? Thanks for having me, Peter. I'm great. Thanks for coming on. You know, I want to get this started. You've got a, had a really interesting career. You've spent some time on Wall Street. Why don't you give, uh, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself before Up and 90? Great. So coming out of college, which seems like a, a long time ago, it's actually <laughs> my 40th birthday today. So, Oh, happy birthday. I didn't know we were yeah. going to be recording on your birthday. Yeah. And... I just was very lucky, you know, when I started interviewing Goldman Sachs was the first company that said, look, we see a lot more of you than you see of us. And if you trust us, we'll put you in the right seat. And, and that ended up being electronic trading. And I'd always like technology and data and, and being in a more fast paced world. And in 2003, covering clients like Gecko and DE Shaw and Two Sigma, which nobody had heard of or wanted to deal with, you know, just gives you... I think really the early days of fintech and that always helped me stay close to startups. And ultimately it took a while, but it's, I think that, that first exposure really helped me start up for 90, which is, you know, this intersection of quant trading and, and, and technology startup investing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So was there some, was there like an aha moment or what, what was the genesis of upper 90? So I think, there were a few aha moments. So I was sitting at dinner probably five years ago with one of my partners, Jason Finger, who started Seamless. And he saw me looking at my phone and he said, what are you looking at? I said, oh, I, most of my investments because I'm in quant trading are in quant trading funds, you know, which are very short duration and very liquid investments. And I said, it was a very volatile day and my portfolio did really well. 
<laughs> and, you know, he looked at me cross-eyed and he said, look, you know, as a founder of Seamless, I get shown some of the most interesting technology startup opportunities because that's what I should be seeing and that's where I can add value. And so my portfolio right now is worth anywhere from zero to infinity. <laughs> it was like the most polar opposite worlds. And Jason said, how can I access the opportunities you have? And I said the same thing right back to him. And so the next day we put together a club of the 10 most interesting tech founders and the 10 most interesting quant founders. Hmm. And we all organized it really well. We all shared our best deals. And it really was meant to bring smart people together because if you bring people with different experiences, you create new opportunities. Right. And from that, we started seeing opportunities in the tech world where change is really happening that had a tremendous amount of predictability in their earnings. And so the first company that we invested in was called FilmRise. And they take data from Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, YouTube, and Roku, and they can track what people are watching digitally. And they can estimate what the value is of different types of TV content based on those eyeballs. And so they were raising capital to go and acquire more libraries. And the quant side of our group started looking at all their cohorts and said, wow, you're, you're buying the rights to all these old British miniseries and detective shows and sports documentaries. And you're buying them at one time revenue and you're selling them to Netflix at nine times. And you have this diversified pool of assets and you have this massive excess spread and you have collateral from the contracts. Like, why are you raising equity? And the founders, you know, said, well, we're a tech company, you know, that's how we grow. <laughs> right. And so I think it just, you know, looking at the world a different way, but we kept finding all these really interesting tech companies where there was a, a way to isolate part of their business and, and help them grow without sacrificing dilution or control. And, and I think it just, with this aha, was kind of bringing together these two worlds. Okay. So then, so is that your, is that your main investment thesis then is, is, you know, is it bringing together, you know, companies that really don't need to raise equity and can do it and, and, and can, because obviously equity is expensive and you got, you get massive dilution if you're a fast growing tech company. So is that, is that the main thesis to try and avoid, you know, avoid founders doing that? Yeah, I think there's, there's two elements here. One is for capital intensive businesses, there's often not enough equity. So like, you know, you could go and accelerate your growth a lot faster if you had access to more capital. And the second is the founders, especially in the early stages, are giving up a lot of their company permanently for something that's measurable in short duration activity. Mm -hmm. I think the common thing in all of this is data. Like data lets you price assets. And everything we do now is captured in data. I think 99% of the world's data has been captured in the last two years. Mm -hmm. So everything we do is going to be measurable. And so I think you're going to see this huge tailwind of like creative ways to finance like specific parts of a business versus equity kind of being the solve for all growth. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, I want, before I go any further, I want to dig into, um, who your LPs are, because I know you've got a very different kind of approach here. So why don't you just give the listeners uh, some background there? Sure. So it goes back to the thesis of the club. You know, it was all about sourcing, finding interesting deals. There's a lot more capital than there are opportunities. And I think that's just, that's compounded. And so our LPs, we have 300 LPs that are all interesting business builders. 
So that DNA of the club has become part of our fund. That's number one. And that includes people like Ted Zagat and Rich Riley and Ross Guerin, the other founders of Seamless, founders of Ticketmaster. So I think really building our fund around these individuals has helped us see interesting opportunities. And number two, founders working with Upper 90 have to feel comfortable with us. I think, you know, people joke, you know, like the best day of your life is getting a deadline from Fortress or Victory Park or all these kind of institutional lenders. And like the second best day of your life is when you refinance that. Right. Right. So I think, you know, you need people that have been founders that have sat in that seat that can really help educate the companies of like, what are the different options out there? Because you're, you're asking them to go a little bit against the traditional, like kind of VC playbook. Mm-hmm. So then uh, do your founders really, sorry, do your LPs uh, get, get like, do they help you source deals? Do they help you, you know, in the selling process, I guess, of uh, helping close these deals? Very much so. Over, if you look at our first fund, over 50% of our deals came from our LPs. Hmm. And that's number one. And then I think there's just a lot of different ways to help founders. So one is capital. You know, I've been on multiple calls with, with Jason, helping founders talk about estate planning. You know, a lot of founders kind of think about what to do after they've had an event versus before. Right. So like, there's all these ways that we can open doors for new customers, helping them hire. So I think we viewed credit as like a very powerful tool to help founders grow but also maintaining that like equity mindset of, right. of, kind of adding value, not being a temporary partner. So mm-hmm. we will only invest in a company where we do equity and debt. So I view us as a hybrid venture fund, not right. a credit. Right. Okay. That's fair enough. So then obviously there's been, you know, venture debt is a pretty well-established industry. I mean, yeah. you've got um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank that's been doing it for decades. Um, is that like, you know, what's the difference between what you do and what Silicon Valley Bank does? It's a great question. And I think there's room for everybody here. So venture debt primarily underwrites the VC. So if you raise more equity, we'll give you 20% of that in debt. Mm-hmm. Based on my quant background and just based on the thesis of our fund, we can look at an asset of a business. So Thrasio, which is one of our largest investments, which is buying stores on Amazon and rolling them up. We can look at that activity and say, you're buying assets, you're stabilizing EBITDA, you're growing EBITDA, and you have a diversified pool of assets. We will give you credit for that activity independent of any equity you raise. So if your business is producing revenue in EBITDA, we can fund that growth with capital from upper 90, whereas venture debt is very much tethered to if you raise more equity, we'll give you more debt. So like the total cost of that is quite expensive and still doesn't really solve the problem for founders around dilutive growth. Right, right. So yeah, because to get to get the venture debt, you've got to get the venture, the venture money in the first place. And yeah. if you don't, yeah, so I can see, I mean, do you find that there's there's a lot of good companies out there that are now yeah, you know, because you know, venture. I mean, there's still crazy valuations. We're talking before we hit record here. Just the, the the crazy world we live in now. And I mean, are you finding that uh, that are CEOs and founders really more open or less open to to debt than because uh, you can get if you get a crazy valuation, maybe you take the you know the equity, right? 
we think there's always room for equity. It's just the question of what's the size and when. So I think for us and going back to our LPs, it's, it's really critical to find companies kind of pre-series A before they've gone and raised a big institutional equity round. Mm. And so like, in some ways, our slogans become skip your A or delay your A. Right. You know, so, so often, you know, a company raises their seed round, they prove the model, they have some repeatability. And the next milestone is to go raise a large series A, you know, and if they can go from five customers to 10 customers, so they can go from one state to two states or from one continent to another continent, like often we can help them have another milestone, just continuing their business activity versus having to raise another equity round prematurely to do that. So that's one. And then number two is just like a lot of companies, and I think this is exciting for Lendit, you know, when we started up or 90, the name is the top corner of a goal, like mm-hmm. these hard to find skill-based, it's a soccer reference. And if you just take a step back, you know, any company, regardless of industry that has customers and has data will be able to offer financing. Right. And so I think a lot of it's educating and working with companies to help them almost create a new product line. So if you're Slice, which sells technology to independent pizzerias, which I'm a personal investor in, it's not too far before them or they will offer financing products to the thousands of pizzerias, you know, for accounts receivable and inventory and, and bulk buying. So I think a lot of it's like educating companies of other products that they can offer where they may have not had the capital to do so. Yeah, that's that's super interesting because you know we've, we've you know embedded finance is one of the exactly. hot the hot topics in uh, in lending. We've had you know Zach from Plaid talk about every every company can become a fintech company, and this that's part of what it is. I mean, because right. you look at the, look at that, that that idea you just talked about. I mean that the, the slice has the data they have is probably far better than any bank is going to have, far better than any yeah. unless you're vertically focused on that industry you're not going to have the same kind of depth and breadth of data, I would imagine. Definitely. And and look, the killer of fintech is CAC. And so if you have the customers and you have the data, like, so I think there's ways for Upper 90 to partner with a lot of these interesting companies and kind of be that first credit facility. You know, what I learned is when you're a startup, the most important thing is certainty of capital, flexibility of capital, then cost. And if we can help founders expand their product set or grow into a business, you know, You'd rather do that with a temporary cost of capital than a permanent cost of capital. So I think a lot of this is, and that's why I'm excited to be here, is how do we help founders become more aware of what, what options are available and right. what cost of capital truly is? Yeah, no, I, I get that. And so then from what it sounds like you're talking, I mean, you, you really aren't focusing on any particular vertical, right? What is the, how do you decide sort of where, where to kind of take your focus? I think we love helping solve complicated problems for founders. And I think based on Jason's background, we have a focus on e-commerce. You know, I, I think when he started Seamless, I always tell the story, but I think it's fascinating, you know, just kind of looking at the world differently. He was a lawyer for a minute and saw everyone ordering their dinner and giving the receipts to the back office. And he saw that he could get his own credit card that paid 2% cash back. And he just started taking everyone's dinner order himself and giving the same receipts to the back office. And Paul, his partner, who's one of our LPs, you know, said, hey, which restaurants around New York City will pay us 2% for the dinner order? 
And that's how Seamless started. So I think, you know, our core focus is e-commerce and fintech. And that's receivables and like online acquisitions and inventory and roll-ups. And, and then I think about a third of our book are special situations where maybe we're helping a founder buy back his company, hmm. you know, at a really low basis to where it's valued. So we, we're comfortable lending money because we know the company itself is worth a lot more. Right. Um, we're lending money to founders against their stock. So I think the, the, the ability in Upper 90, you know, my other partner, Alex Ordea, understands credit and underwriting really well. So the fact that we can underwrite the equity of the business and what it's worth from Jason and underwrite the assets and Alex, I think it lets us have a couple different ways to lend money because, you know, the reality is if everyone had the same loan tape and saw, you know, the performance or, of a, a fintech company, you know, banks would be competing for that. So we've done things where we can just, you know, help founders solve complicated problems, but primarily in, in technology, e-commerce, fintech business. Right, right. So can, you mentioned a couple of names, but maybe can you can you give give the listeners maybe some names that they they know in the fintech space that you uh, that you the part of your portfolio? Sure. So I'll start with one since we just saw Tesla, you know, make a big, big <laughs> so. Yes, exactly. One of our companies is that I'm very excited about is called Crusoe Energy Systems. And Chase Lockmiller also comes from, he was at Jump Trading and Polychain. He's a personal friend. He's actually an LP in Upper 90 and started this company about two years ago where he created portable data centers that he's bringing to the middle of the United States to, you know, Wyoming and North Dakota where there's a large amount of oil drilling, but there's no pipeline. And so when you drill oil, they often will ship the oil on transit, but the natural gas gets burned and flared. So I believe there's more natural gas getting burned in the US every year than the amount of energy consumed in Japan. Wow. It's enormous. And so he's built these proprietary data centers that can be moved on site to the oil fields and he's basically getting paid to take this natural gas and converting it to energy to mine Bitcoin. <laughs> That's great. And really what he's doing, the reason I'm so excited about the business is he's capturing this exhausted energy. Right. And he's initially using it to mine Bitcoin, but over time it's a distributed cloud computing business to do anything that's computationally intensive. Right. And so it goes back, there's more data than we have energy to crunch. And so he needed capital for the data centers themselves, like for the generators that yeah. had nothing to do with Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. because it was a tech company and a startup and doing crypto, you know, the traditional equipment financing, you know, all these traditional lenders and sources of capital were not available. So he would either, you know, have to slow growth or he'd have to really dilute himself. So Upper 90 created a $40 million facility to fund a distributed group of these projects where we finance the data centers that had kind of this individual collateral with an upside based on crypto. So I think that's like a really exciting example of how you kind of isolated a core growth activity and were able to solve a problem, which actually helped the company accelerate growth and reduce dilution. I love that too, because it's also using waste. It's just something that was going to waste Absolutely. and doing something. So I'm super excited about this. Everyone should keep an eye out for it and just super interesting space, you know, but again, bringing together like a lot of these his partner comes from oil and gas and 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's one example of where I really viewed us as a partner solving that. And we were also a smaller equity investor. Um, another company is called Thrasio, which is buying stores on Amazon. So there's 50,000 small business owners on Amazon selling hiking poles and whiteboards and you know, you name it, that make over a million dollars of EBITDA a year. Huh. And but each one of them, it's easy to start a business online. You know, we could leave this and start a business selling any product very quickly, but the cost to scale it is still is what traditionally is a limiting factor. So you need inventory capital and supply chain expertise and marketing dollars and all the things that require, you know, are capital intensive. So Thrasio is going and is rolling up all these small stores on Amazon into one big hold co and providing massive, you know, operational excellence and capital to them. And so it's the fastest unicorn, profitable unicorn in the US or one of them. They just completed a multi-billion dollar equity valuation raise. We were the first equity and debt provider when the company was in the, you know, tens of millions of dollars valuation. And they raised, I think, six million of equity. And we ended up giving them almost 50 or $75 million of debt before they raised another dollar of equity. So this is like a great example, going back to venture debt of like, if it's working, we can scale with a company right. in a non-dilutive way versus requiring kind of equity checkpoints. So that's another one we're unbelievably excited about. And I think if we had this call 20 years ago, we would be talking about rolling up dry cleaners and coffee shops and gyms, you know, all these subscale fragmented assets. And I think I just say what's new is old. You have all these businesses that are being created online that have traditional capital needs. Right. And I think there's that kind of, we're not splitting the atom here. We're just trying to, you know, kind of solve a, a problem that we has existed. So it sounds like your, your average check size is pretty, it's a pretty wide range from what you're saying. I mean, do you, yeah. well, like maybe you start, what's, what's the smallest check size you do? And, and what, what, what is the, what is sort of the average? I think the earlier that we can start with a business, the more value we can add. So if we can, you know, we've started with a $2 million check because mm-hmm. we love the founder. It was a, the simplest way to get started in a relationship and show that we could be partners. And I think the largest upfront check we've done is 50 million. Mm-hmm. Right. And okay. the largest facility we've done is 500 million. Wow. So then, and what, what, and what are the terms on, like if you're, if you're providing these, are you, you know, just explain how, is, is everything unique or do you have sort of a standard set of terms that you, that you like to apply? I think everything is bespoke, mm-hmm. but I can walk through, you know, kind of a general framework. I think a couple things that we've done, you know, that I'm, that I'm proud of is we raised a smaller fund. I think we could have raised a larger fund, but our last fund was $200 million. So we're, we don't feel obligated to, if, if 5 million is what the company needs, that's a, we're happy with that position size. If we, you know, so many of these funds have raised gargantuan dollars. And so their goal seek is to try to put as much money in the, in the company as possible. Mm-hmm. And so generally our facilities are bespoke and, you know, I'd say generally they're kind of like low, low teens right. with high advance rates. And, you know, we, we, with, with just generally more flexibility. So that could be higher concentration limits or higher advance rate, or just, you know, just, some of the tools that companies need in the early phases when they're still figuring it out. 
Right, right. And are they, and what what about length? Term length? Are you are you doing this over? Uh, you know, is it three years, five years? What are you What are you trying to? I think our average on? facility is usually in place for two years, maybe three years. Right. And we like to work with other partners. You know, people have been able to bring in parallel facilities. You know, we always. I think a lot of people in the lending space, like ask for freebies and warrants and have all these hidden fees around originations. And we keep it very simple. You know, there's none of those hidden fees around like unused fees and origination fees. And we, as I said, we just want to provide capital to companies we're excited about the business. And so we will buy equity and be an equity partner, not, I always think it's funny when these credit funds say, you know, we don't, we don't really care about the equity outcome. It's like, well, then why are you asking for warrants? <laughs> right. You know, like it just, it's, so I, I think it's just creating alignment with the founders. Right. Right. Fair enough. So I want to go back to this thing. I think, I think you've touched on it, but I want to dig into it a bit more because when you were, we had a revenue-based financing session that you were on at Lendit last year. And, and you said this interesting thing. Um, you said that data creates asset classes. And is that sort of some of the things you've been talking about with the slice thing, but maybe can you just kind of tease that out a little bit more? Sure. And I think it's actually quite exciting if you take a step back, because if you're, if you and I wanted to create a business that wasn't going to be a unicorn, but you knew that you could own the majority of the business, like that would be a great business to start. Like, so what I think, to give examples might be more informative than just me talking. So, you know, when, when COVID ends and everyone goes back to get an internship at McKinsey or Goldman or Lendit or Upper 90, you know, most people coming to New York City or Boston or London have to get an apartment before they get a paycheck. And a lot of people don't have that cash flow. And so there's going to be companies that integrate with the payroll of all these large corporations and will be able to validate employment and how much are getting paid to give an advance for their apartment for a percentage of their future paycheck, you know, and the Uber driver that gets paid every two weeks, but needs money more frequently. Companies like Claire and others will help validate that transaction in those events. You know, even Thrasio, you know, they're turning the Amazon seller into an asset. 20 years ago, you go and get, you know, an Excel file or QuickBooks from a pizzeria. Now you can log into their Amazon and validate everyday sales. You know, people who are going back to school and getting trained to be a pilot, you can predict what the probability is of their future earnings and job placement, and they can effectively sell equity in themselves today to get their school paid for. So I think like, you know, everything that we do is going to, I think an eye open. you asked me what was an aha moment. In my career, there were two aha moments. One, when I was at Knight Capital briefly, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ at the time charged all firms effectively the same commission to trade. So if you were trading against BlackRock as a market maker, that order would have a lot of impact because of the size of the order. So if you sold a share today, that would keep moving up in price because of the size BlackRock needed to buy. If you're trading against Two Sigma, they're trading because they think at this microsecond, there's some type of mispricing. So you're unlikely to make money there. You know, if my mother is buying a share of Google for my grandkids, like she has no size or view. And so Knight and Citadel went to all the retail firms 
and said, look, if we know it's you and we're not getting picked off or run over, we can give you a better price. And so this whole, it's like insurance, like micro pricing, the healthy versus the sick. Right. And so that was very eye-opening to me. And then Metromile, which said, hey, if, if you live in New York City, 70% of people are weekend drivers and they're paying the same insurance as the daily drivers. So now we can put a tracker in your car and charge your insurance by the mile. Right. So like this whole tailored financing and micro pricing, I think is going to be like in everything we do. And it's going to just change, you know, what's kind of experimental where you should be using equity versus what's predictable where you should be using like things like upper 90. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why do you think there's not more companies doing what you're doing? Is it just because it's hard? Because there's, there's just not that many, you know, debt finance, there's not much in the way of debt financing for growth companies. It just doesn't, uh, it's not a really well-populated uh, niche. So why do you think that is? I think it's going to change. I think you're going to see a, a couple VCs that are going to start offering credit alongside equity. Mm-hmm. I think QED and Dreesen Horowitz, some of the more advanced fintech oriented firms, I think are going to, you know, just, it's almost like I look at back when Goldman started, you know, they, they did banking, then the companies went public. So they created sales and trading. And then, you know, they needed the companies that wanted to go and raise debt. So they created fixed income. So I think you're going to see more of the larger VCs become asset managers. But I think it's, it's just bringing together people from different backgrounds. Like when I, when I really try to put up or 90 together, it was to get the DNA of those, the equity and the debt together in one place. And I, I think most firms are either, are one or the other. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we usually, usually see, and I have, I have had rumors of, uh, of debt funds coming from, uh, from VCs. So we usually see yeah. what, what happens there. Okay. So we're almost out of time, but be, before I let you go, um, maybe, you could sort of take a, a look, I mean, at, at FinTech today, and we, we've, we've covered a few topics already, but what do you think are some of the interesting trends that we haven't talked about uh, in FinTech today? It's a good question. I mean, we, we, we touched briefly on embedded finance and we touched briefly on data. I think, I think every company is going to offer some form of a financial product. And I think fintech just becomes what is part of a business. And I think it's, it's, it's extremely exciting. And I think the other thing, I mean, you've talked about that a lot, so I'm not going to belabor, you know, the, I think we're early in embedded fintech. I just think it's going to be, it's, it'll be part of kind of every business versus its own category. It's right. going to be common. And then the other thing that I think is very interesting is the, emergence of like the small business owner, like it's so much easier today to start a business. You know, if it was 20 years ago, we need to like rent a corner storefront and we'd have to get insurance and we'd have to like the, the burden to be a small business owner. I, m- I remember when we talked briefly about some of your prior entrepreneurial experiences, mm-hmm. I'm maybe in printing, I forget what it was, but yep. I just think what Amazon's doing and, and Shopify, like, the rails to be your own entrepreneur, I think is, or starting a store on Etsy. I, I think it's, it's going to, it's so good for society and the ability to kind of go and get not just SBA financing, but getting inventory financing from payability and getting marketing financing from ClearBank and getting, you know, growth capital from upper 90. I think 
the ability to start a business online and the access to capital because you can validate data, I think it's going to open up a whole new world of, of entrepreneurs. And it's not like VC backed entrepreneurs. It's like the, you know, the ability to kind of run your own small business. Yep. So I think another big theme is the, like, I don't know what you call it, like the hippo, you know, like there's the unicorn where everyone's trying to go and be this multi-billion dollar company. And I think all of these creative financing options will let people kind of create small, but very strong businesses like franchising 2.0. Right. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah. And like for me, I mean, my, my dad was an entrepreneur. This is, I'm an entrepreneur. This is my fifth company lended, lended FinTech. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it, it may well be my last because I find it endlessly fascinating, but um, you know, I, I think you're right though. It's really interesting what yeah. it's, it's just the barrier to entry to being a small business owner has just gone down so far um, from what, from what it was yeah. a decade ago. And certainly no, we could start ago. a YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. I think that's an area that we're looking at, like rolling up, you know, you can look at the number of viewers on a channel and predict future revenue. Right. Like the Instagram accounts, Wave TV, like, you know, buying Instagram accounts based on number of viewers that they've attracted. Like what's the value of somebody who's a viewer of a channel? So right. I think that all, like to me, it's going to open up the ability for people to start businesses. And I feel upper 90 is like, we're earning a good return, but we're just helping finance like, some of these kind of new and emerging industries that have not been the like focus for VCs. Right. Right. Okay. So then, so the last question then, what, what, what's next for you guys? Are you, are you just, are you going to be raising a new fund? Are you, you know, doing more of the same and what, what are you, what are you planning for, for this year and beyond for that matter? So we just closed our second fund in November and we hit our hard cap of 200 million I've personally got a lot of satisfaction out of having this really unique LP base. I love learning from them and talking with them and, and finding new opportunities. And they, have, they award us a lot of flexibility. You know, if you go and get institutional capital, you kind of take away a lot of the flexibility to solve problems for founders. Mm -hmm. So I think on the fun side is like keeping fund AUM around this size. Like we can start small, but we can do a big enough check for that first phase. And I think that, you know, we're just brainstorming of, more special situations. Like, should we do a SPAC? You know, we think we see a lot of interesting companies that are kind of in between focus areas. Should we incubate businesses? Should we partner with the companies in our portfolio? Thrasio started a business that is lending money to Amazon sellers, not acquiring them called Yardline. You know, ClearBank to me is a future of venture. They sit on so much data around so many companies so I think there's a lot of ways for us to keep the fund size the same and then build kind of almost like equity expressions around the fund mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in partnership or ourselves. Right, right. Interesting. Well, we've run out of time, Billy. It's been really a, an eye-opening interview. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. You know, and if, if I was talking to you as a potential partnership, I would say, you know, Peter, you know, you have your Lend It conference next year. Can we help you finance some of your future receivables so you can bring cash today against what you expect to get in the future? And, mm -hmm. you know, you have, you want to roll out Lend It Europe and like, is there enough predictability around demand that we can help finance that versus you having to raise more equity? So right. I think the most fun is working with founders and kind of trying to uncover their goals and then figuring out if there's a creative way that we can help solve that with some combination of equity and debt. Right. Equity. Right. So thanks okay, again. Good. Good there. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Yep. 
You know, I just want to go back to uh, what something Billy just said there that you know, we he talked about data and how it's really creating you know, more opportunities for small business owners, for entrepreneurs everywhere. And how this is something that I, I know that Karen Mills, the former head of the Small Business Administration, talks about, talked about it in her new book. She called it Small Business Utopia. And what Billy was talking about there really points to the same thing. And it's all around data. The data that every small business has is going to really, all of it is going to be used to really ascertain how healthy the business is, what kind of capital it needs, what the price of that capital. And with companies like Billy doing creative ways to help companies grow, you're really looking at a situation in the future where, you know, Small business owners will be able to get access to to the capital they need, whether you're just a local pizza place or whether you're wanting to roll up a hundred different pizza places and create a juggernaut, there's going to be capital that is going to be available to you. And I think that's going to be super exciting. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lended's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, with the possibility of an exclusive VIP in-person component. The verdict is in on Lender's 2020 event that was held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they had ever attended. Lended is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lended Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lended.com slash USA.